Welcome to the Conversation Weekly. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto. And I am Dan Marino in San Francisco. Dan, you're outdoorsy, right? Like you live in California. Yes, I do live in California and I am outdoorsy. I went for a surf on Saturday and I'm supposed to go on a hike tomorrow and look at some flowers. So the stereotype is true. The active outdoors Californian. Uh, yeah, of course, it's a stereotype. So not everyone is that way. But yeah, broadly speaking, I'd say there's a deep kind of connection between the culture of kind of being outdoorsy and into nature and doing these activities and living in California, especially when we consider how many natural spaces, how many conservation areas there are here. So how are these places regulated? Are you aware of of their management? I'd say somewhat. Fishing is regulated, right? You can't just go out there and hunt all the deer you want. You need to get a license. Not that I hunt or anything. You can go cut down wood in some places, but you got to get a permit. It's always a bit of a balancing act between what people might want to do if they had utter freedom in the woods versus what they're allowed to do. There seems to be tied into the conservation of natural resources, this idea of limiting or restricting people's access or use of what's available. Absolutely. And I think it also depends on a person's culture, right? Like as someone who isn't a hunter, who isn't a big fisherman or anything, I have different desires and different ways of interacting with the land. But some other people might have different ways of approaching the natural spaces. So that's what we're looking at today. This episode looks at how conservation practices can impact cultural practices of communities. And we're also looking at how those cultural practices in turn can help conserve vulnerable resources. I wanted to do this by looking specifically at the history of Indian sandalwood, which is one of the most coveted woods in the world, from East Africa, where I'm from, to the Middle East and China and Europe. So I'm Sudanese, and sandalwood's quite important to my culture. When sandalwood became more strictly regulated in the last few years, it became harder to get a hold of sandalwood products. So I became quite interested in how regulating sandalwood impacted how it was used within our cultural practices. Hi, I'm Danny Hetiarachi, and I'm serving as an adjunct research fellow at the University of Western Australia, and also my permanent uh, job is as the product specialist at the Quintus Sandalwood in Western Australia. Danny works on sandalwood's cultivation and applications. When I spoke with Danny, he was in Sri Lanka, where he grew up. My work with sandalwood dates back more than 15 years. My background is from Sri Lanka, and I studied in India, so I was introduced to sandalwood, I think, as an infant, without even my knowledge. So uh, sandalwood is part and parcel of life. So when I got an opportunity to work for the sandalwood industry, it was a surreal experience for me to to work for sandalwood, to be known as a person who's closer to the holy wood back in my home country. Can you describe what sandalwood is? I always say sandalwood is divine. For me, it it is home. It is what makes me feel proud of it. And basically for about 15 years, uh, one of the main purposes of my life is sandwood. So I'm really happy. And I've done my PhD studies on sandwood. So it is, it's a huge part of my professional as well as my academic life. How would you describe the smell of sandalwood? There are a few aspects to that. So if you go with the perfumers aspect, so we have different types of sandwood. As you. I like Indian sandwood very much because it's closer to my upbringing. But professionally, as well as the time I spent, I really like the aroma of Western Australian or the Australian sandwood as well. Western Australian sandwood is more earthy. 
more, I would say it has a bit of a terpenic type of a note. For me, it smells very much the, the aroma of Australia. So it has that earthiness, it has that depth to that. And Indian sandalwood is one of those woody aromas which has a lactonic note to that, like milky, creamy type of a note. So that's what makes sandalwood very special among the woody notes. I asked Danny about the trends in sandalwood use over time. How the form of perfumes and the oil extracted perfumes, it develops in the Indian culture for a very long time. And by the 10th century, I think with the influx of the Persian and Arabic technology, they started distilling much more. This distillation process gave rise to an essential oil called utter. So the sandalwood was distilled and then these aromas were actually captured into sandalwood like floral aromas and spice aromas were captured into sandalwood oil. That is a very specialized distillation extraction method that was introduced to early western perfumery through the Arabic trades borders prevalent in the southern Europe. So that's how most of these ingredients were introduced to early European perfumers and they all recognize sandalwood is going to be one of the best vehicles, one of the best fixatives in perfumes and it has proved with time sandalwood has been there for from some of the earliest perfumes created in the western or the modern perfume list. Although there are no detailed statistics available for the use of sandalwood, it's used in about a third of all modern perfumes. I asked Danny what other applications sandalwood has. So in China, sandalwood is seen as an incense, but in, in India it is a medicine, a cosmetic, incense, and then a perfume. The use of sandalwood and its products, including incense, is especially significant to mark cultural occasions and religious practices such as funerals and weddings. The perfume part comes together with cosmetics. So people use it for different type of ailments. It's still a medicine given internally for even in pediatric dosage forms and also in the urinary tract infections, that sort of diseases and also some genitourinal diseases. And also it goes into food as well. I had no idea that sandalwood could be ingested, but I knew that it's used for medicinal purposes. There were a big trend a few years ago to check the medicinal properties of sandalwood, mainly the, the topical properties. Something which we lack in modern natural product scientists is that we don't really understand the polyherbal formulation. So in the current scientific method, what we study is of a single herb, what is the active principle and how it works, and then try to related to a certain mechanism of action. But in um, Ayurvedic medicine or traditional Chinese medicine or any traditional medicine in the Arabic world, they see how the herbs interact with each other. I didn't really know that there were so many uses of sandalwood and how culturally important it was in other places. Yeah, I mean, I knew how important it was to me in my culture, but I had no idea its wide-ranging applications. With so many cultures valuing sandalwood and using it in their practices, I got to imagine it's pretty hard to meet all that demand globally. That's the tricky thing. So historically, as more cultures come to use it and rely on it for different cultural and sometimes medicinal practices, sandalwood's become a vulnerable species. And as a result, it's been subjected to all of these different kinds of regulations and forms of management since its discovery. Has that affected like your use of sandalwood, for example, Nahal? Has, have you found it harder to 
find some? Yeah, it used to be a lot more easily available until about a few years ago. In late 2018, early 2019, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature declared sandalwood to be a vulnerable species. After that, the Indian government started cracking down on its export. I found all of these newspaper report incidents of Sudanese people being stopped at customs departments and airports trying to leave with small amounts of sandalwood. That's a really direct example of laws changing and then people's relationship to this important product, this important wood has to change too. So how do scholars think about these decisions? I got to imagine there's a lot of research that looks at how the cultural and the conservation practices are in tension with each other, are in balance with each other. So I spoke with Ezra Rashko, and he researches the practices and policies that are put in place in response to a species becoming at risk, and the impact that these regulations can have on communities and the way that they're able to access a resource. Ezra started off by telling me about the history of sandalwood and the reasons why people have wanted to manage its distribution in the first place. And it's been everybody who's tried to regulate it, from Indian maharajas to British colonial powers to the Indian government. And he says that these regulations haven't always been to protect it for use by the people who rely on it traditionally. Hi, my name is Ezra Rashko. I'm Associate Professor of History at Montclair State University in New Jersey, USA. I'm a historian primarily of modern South Asia and environmental history. I've written a couple of articles now about the history of sandalwood and its uses and the abuse of it really over the ages, how it's gained an endangered status at this point. What is endangerment? It's really a perception, I think. A feeling that something is under threat, a fear even that something is vanishing or disappearing, and which generates a desire or a need to protect it. There are so many different things in this world that could be described as endangered, as vanishing or disappearing, as threatened with extinction. He says that originally the concept of endangerment was specifically applied to human populations, but has evolved to refer to species more generally. The concept of endangered species, which is, I think, what most people associate with the term. I've argued in my most recent book that this concept really comes about as humans' perceptions shifted away from a really anthropocentric view of the universe, where primarily it was human societies and cultures and phenomena, humans' lives and livelihoods that might have been seen as endangered previously to in the mid-20th century, really in the 1960s and 70s, a conservationist attitude or mentality that put other forms of life in the center, a more biocentric kind of focus that with the environmentalist movement started to recognize non-human species as endangered of disappearing and vanishing as well. And that process impacts individuals and communities who are living in proximity with nature. Ezra explained to me that in the case of Indian sandalwood, the idea that as a species it needed protection began when the Indian Sultanate designated it as a royal tree in the 1700s. As early as the 1790s, really, in India, under the ruler of what's now the Mysore region in Karnataka state, Tipu Sultan. And I believe it was 1792 when Tipu Sultan declared Indian sandalwood a royal tree and designated it as a protected species, as it were, 
course, terms like protected species themselves didn't exist at that time. But this was now a monopoly of the state. Only Sultan's agents could cut down the tree, bring it to market, export it, etc. And from there, those protections stayed in place when the British defeated Tipu Sultan in 1799 at the Battle of Seringapatam. The British were very interested in trade, right? It was the British East India Company that won this battle. And so any kind of monopoly on a forest product or any other kind of wealth of the state would certainly be something that they were interested in maintaining. And they, at that point, really started to harvest as much sandalwood as possible, as much as the market would allow. So this term protection is a little bit ironic in that context. So this was the British protecting their right to exploit it? Yeah, I would say that's a pretty fair assessment. Sandalwood occupied an extremely important place in early colonial world history, right? Because sandalwood was one of the very few commodities that the Chinese were willing to trade for gold and silver. That before the 1830s and the Opium Wars forced open China's markets, sandalwood was really it. They saw almost no need for any European manufactured goods at that point. Really, every variety of sandalwood and fragrant wood was valued in China at that time. But Indian sandalwood was considered one of the most expensive woods in the world, if not the most expensive wood in the world. There are several types of sandalwood, each with its own unique characteristics and uses. Some of the most common types of sandalwood today include Indian or white sandalwood, red sandalwood, and yellow sandalwood. Indian sandalwood is considered the most valuable and sought after. But the British were so keen to exploit and trade any type of sandalwood that some of the species that existed previously no longer exist today. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, the race was really on for sandalwood. Now, these were different species, subspecies of sandalwood from Santalum album that existed across the South Pacific, etc. But European colonists really went island hopping at that time, largely in a hunt for sandalwood, cutting down all the trees that they could find on each of these small islands, essentially wiping out, we don't really know how many subspecies of the tree at that time, and causing local extinctions of the tree. He says although Indian sandalwood is a threatened species today, it has been preserved as a result of the government's conservation efforts, cultivation practices, and legal restrictions on its trade and export. The case in India was relatively different because of this state monopoly and also because India's relatively vast region of subcontinental proportions and the sandalwood tracks in Karnataka were relatively vast. And there were a couple of factors that really helped to protect the species in India at the time. Although when the British entered the scene, as I said, they really did try to exploit it as far as both the species and the market would allow. Part of what has made sandalwood as a whole such a prized good is that no one could figure out how to cultivate the tree. The problem really turns out that sandalwood 
is what's known as a semi-parasite. Sandalwood requires other trees and other plants nearby in order to grow, really, in order to thrive. And so early silviculture experiments, that's what the British called these tree plantations, were largely monocultures, right? They were trying to plant the tree on its own and they couldn't understand why the tree was dying. They did find that they could broadcast the seeds just around into hedgerows and that the tree would grow and they couldn't understand why, but it, that was considered to be a not a very efficient method of cultivation. It wasn't just that planting the trees was a challenge. It takes time for sandalwood to develop the heartwood, which is the most fragrant part. And then when it came to these Pacific islands, I think it's worthwhile noting that these European sailors or colonizers or imperialists, they were usually on island hopping tours that didn't last very long. They weren't there to settle down and cultivate sandalwood over the course of what would be a minimum of 30 years is really what it takes for sandalwood heartwood to develop. And it only grows slowly over time. And so really, the most fragrant trees with the most heartwood are quite old, certainly over 50 years old. Today, there are very few sandalwood trees in the world that are that old. Most of them are being cultivated on plantations and are generally harvested by the time they reach maturity at around 30 years. When it comes to the state's relationship with sandalwood and the state's monopoly on sandalwood, I think it's worthwhile pointing out that, again, India was at an advantage compared to other parts of the world, like the Pacific Islands, where, you know, many for many of these regions, for many of these communities, this was essentially their first encounter with for lack of a better term, the outside world. And when these sailors and colonizers came in, they were relatively inexperienced with crafting laws, uh, governing trade with certainly as powerful a presence as various European East India companies and the sandalwood traders. And so that's also a good explanation for why the tree was devastated across the Pacific as quickly as it was. By the early 20th century, the availability of sandalwood species had become extremely low. We've harvested nearly all the wild sandalwood that we can harvest. There's relatively few trees of significant age producing enough sandalwood, uh, heartwood left to harvest. We've not really figured out how to cultivate it yet, or we're just starting to. And then we have this major blight as well. And so in the early 20th century, sandalwood is really starting to face a crisis already, in particular because what used to happen was after the China trade started to fall away, out of it, become relatively less important, we start to see the rise of European perfumeries as a major source of income for the foresters and for the state, and a shift towards, as usual in a colonial economy, industrial processes happening in Europe and raw materials being brought out of the colonial periphery, as it was called, and into the center. And then the World Wars happened. But by the early 20th century, of course, we have World War One starting to really impact what's happening in Europe. So places like Cologne in Germany, 
which was a major importer of the tree, of course, was no longer allowed to import the tree because relations between the British and the Germans had soured, to put it lightly. And France was locked into World War I as well, and so couldn't really be bothered about perfumeries where some of these were being converted into things like munition depots. While the British lost some of their monopoly over sandalwood, India saw an opportunity and began exploiting the wood on an industrial scale. It was in 1916-1917 that India's first homegrown sandalwood oil factory gets set up. And at that point, homegrown production starts to ramp up. And while the amount that could be exported previously was something of a limiting factor in how much of the sandalwood would be cut down, harvested, and sold annually, now it was just how much could we produce in the factory that was a limiting factor. And this whole situation happens again in World War II, and then India gains independence, of course. And now independent India is relatively poor. There's a major push towards industrialization from the top under the Nehru government, etc. And so it's we really start to see in the 1950s through 70s a, a simply massive harvest and arguably massive over-exploitation of sandalwood resources. At that point, speaking about state control, the state is still very much maintaining a monopoly on sandalwood in all aspects of it, really. Its growth on plantations, its harvesting, its sale, its export, and its production into sandalwood oil, sandalwood soaps, etc., in these government sandalwood oil factories. We also have pretty reliable statistics from the period where we start to see several thousand tons of sandalwood heartwood being harvested and produced annually from the 1950s through the early 1970s, something like 4,000 tons of sandal heartwood being harvested annually. Until suddenly a um, survey of the Karnataka State Forest declared that there essentially weren't enough trees left to harvest, enough trees to supply a single year of feeding the sandal oil factories anymore. That resource survey was in, in 1974. And so at that point, this oil production really started to decline or grind to a halt as the sandal stocks started to dry up. And what was already considered to be one of the most expensive woods in the world, the price just started to skyrocket astronomically as well. So this really sounds like a story that I feel like I've heard a lot over the years is that somebody comes in, they realize something's valuable, they start protecting it for certain reasons, and then it kind of all falls apart because they didn't bring in the right people to think about how to manage and protect this important thing. And then we end up at a place where all the sandalwood is gone and nobody's happy. So what's happened since that whole story went down the hall? Historically, sandalwood's been really difficult to cultivate. But now there are plantations in Australia that are cultivating Indian sandalwood. So it's one of those rare environmental stories where not everything is all gloom and doom. Danny talked to me about Australia's success in cultivating Indian sandalwood, and that's what's currently meeting global demand. So is this a, one of these cases then where 
the economic value really drove a sustainability mindset because right that's the whole idea of sustainability if you manage something well you can have it be valuable you can have it be available and you can not be cutting down trees in the woods i mean we've we've reached a point where the demand for it has resulted in a supply of it being produced but the endangerment of sandalwood could have been prevented if it had been managed differently with the communities that use it the most in mind from the first place. And if we'd understood that having communities feel invested in their natural resources for cultural purposes isn't necessarily a bad thing, Indian sandalwood might not be as vulnerable as it is today. They are really important uh, issues that relate specifically to sandalwood. They also are kind of generic questions about nature and natural resources and culture and the interactions between them and what happens when we use things and what happens when we overuse them or indeed when they become kind of marketized that can be a further problem but also thinking about the long term you know how are we going to maintain important environments and communities into the long term Jules Pretty is a professor of environment and society at the University of Essex in the UK. I talked to him about how environmental regulations can impact culture and why the cultural use of a resource can actually help preserve it in the first place. How does Sandalwood allow us to talk about nature-cultural relations and the importance of considering um, conservation of both? I think Sandalwood is a perfect example of how we can explore these close interactions between nature, species, and culture, the kind of human views and values that we develop and evolve in particular landscapes. And um, sandalwood's a beautiful tree with lovely oil, um, has many different uses. It's become sacred in many communities. In other words, people have added an extra layer of importance to it, um, uh, for for long-term protection. And for those reasons, I think it gives us a window into thinking more broadly about the importance of looking after natural ecosystems and all their species and the cultures that kind of intertwine with them um, uh, in particular places. The reason that sandalwood offers a window into some of the issues around conservation is that when the British designated it a protected plant in the 17th century, they did so under the pretext that it needed protection from human communities. But Jules says that the relationship between human cultures and the use of natural resources isn't always exploitative. What's clear is that nature and culture have been closely intertwined through through human history and have recently been somewhat separated um, by markets and economies and city living and so forth. Indeed, the two are not actually separate, nature and culture. They are the same thing. They have always been the same thing in, in human history until quite recently, um, until a kind of separation of nature and people with agriculture, cities, modern economies, and so forth. So the problem is that resources aren't just used in cultural practices, but that they're also exploited for profit. And sometimes that's done under the guise of conservation efforts. Conservation obviously begs an immediate question for whom, and, and indeed what, what are we 
conserving and are we trying to keep things as they are or are we trying to create systems that are that are capable and resilient and that things will you know move up and down due, you know over the years over the decades and centuries um so conservation has at times come to mean um conservation of wild species and therefore uh, very often kind of conservation areas national parks, reserves, and so forth, feel that they should do that by excluding people. Can we have a relationship with nature that is not extractive? Absolutely. Yes, we can. We can think about our our behaviours as individuals, our choices as communities, our policies that frame all of that, the, the very kind of worldview that shapes how we think we should act. And wherever you look, there are amazingly interesting examples of people and cultures who have, have worked together in kind of collective action programs um, on lots of kind of regenerative style things that improve biodiversity or soils or trees or water, a whole range of what you might say the kind of important resources for agriculture, but also the important outcomes of agriculture. He says we have to recognize that cultural practices can lead to the sustainable management of resources. I think that the conservation of cultural practices is super important that it's and it's by definition kind of broad how very differently humans in different parts of the world see the world I mean really very differently um, worldviews are amazingly diverse fantastic to be celebrated and we shouldn't be losing that on top of that there are the choices for example on how we make we humans make particular places sacred and essentially what that means is that that if you decide that a tree is sacred or a landscape is sacred or a rock or a set of petroglyphs or a kind of story in the landscape then you're going to look after it and we're already then on the track of sustainability because that sustainability means looking after stuff the world for a long period of time. And in the case of sandalwood, that means recognizing how its cultural value can lead to its preservation in the future. A lot of people know about sandalwood. A lot of people value it. It's it's closely intertwined into cultures and people feel as though it's kind of part of them. They see them as being a central part of their lives. Um, and it is a sacred tree in many communities in southern India, for example. And because it has that kind of characterization, that value of being sacred, then it's looked after in a particular kind of way, which again gets us back to thinking about about sustainability. And of course, the worries that we all would have would be, well, fine until things start to get marketized and require a different kind of value and people try to acquire it in order to make money. And therefore, you might end up long-term damage to the species, which is one of the reasons why, on the one hand, there are plantations being developed in Australia to grow lots of them. And on the other hand, countries such as India are imposing restrictions upon the kind of use of sandwood oil because they're concerned about, about the natural environment. That's it for this episode. Thank you to this week's guest, Danny Hacherachi, Ezra Rashko, and Jules Pretty. 
And also thank you to James McHugh, who I spoke to for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support the podcast and the conversation more broadly. You can go to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was written and produced by me, Nihal Al-Hadi, and by Men Marwani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sarl. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. Men Marwani is also the show's executive producer. And I'm Dan Marino. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll be back next week.